to Poldark Podcast, a fan-created podcast about all things Poldark Saga. But before we get started, we should introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Michelle. I live in the States. I blog on Tumblr at Poldark Muses and I tweet at Musings. I, myself, am Delanda. I live in France. I blog on Tumblr at British Leso and tweet at Delanda Dia. My name is Rita. I live in England. I Tumblr at Princess of Poldark and I tweet at Rita Bites. In this week's podcast, we will be recapping and discussing episode four of season four. It aired this past Sunday on BBC One, and if you were trying to watch it here in the States or anywhere else on TV Catch-Up, it was a cluster bleep. But anyway, but if you haven't seen the episode yet, uh, head over to iPlayer immediately and go get caught up. Uh, our co- podcast is chock full of spoilers, So, for those of you that have not seen the episode, now's the time for you to scamper away. Now, for those of you that have seen it, let us begin, as ever, with our recap. The episode begins with a lovely day at the beach for the Poldarks and the Ennises. Caroline quips about baby Sarah causing her to miss out on the rocking game of blind man's bluff the children are playing. I live for the day the little beast runs away. I tell her I shan't miss her at all. Luke Norris hits us with a look of such heartbreak that even Ross picks up on it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, Anyhow, uh, cut to George showing Valentine his favorite hobby, counting money, crown, sixpences, etc, etc. Family bonding in the Warlegan household is mighty strange. Elizabeth walks into the room and to seemingly read a book. In fact, she is here to drop a bombshell. She just casually mentions that Demelza got Lord Falmouth and Sir Francis to end their feud. (sighs) George responds by calling her an, quote, impotent kitchen troll, end quote. He now has reason one billion to try and ruin the Poldarks. (sighs) Aren't you getting tired of this, George? I mean, seriously? Back at Nimpara... That night, Demelza worries about her relationship with Ross. Yes, they are reconciled and clearly still getting busy, but she is afraid that one, quote, quote, rough storm, end quote, will separate them again. Ross, displaying a spectacular level level of delusion, <laughs> reassuring her that they will take care to avoid the thunder. He clearly doesn't know what show he is on. <laughs> no clue. Let's bring the mood down even further, shall we? Because Ross goes to visit Lord Falmouth. They talk politics. It seems Ross's first year in Parliament, Ross had a free reign, but when they return, Lord Falmouth will be influencing him on a few votes of local importance. The show plays dramatic music as if this is some kind of grand corruption of democracy. But in reality, every member of a political party has had to compromise on this issue, so we won't waste any time crying a river for him. Meanwhile, Ozzy Whitworth is back at Notary Pierce's deathbed. On the surface, he's there to give him religious guidance. In actuality, he's there to get a list of names of those whom Pierce embezzled money from. A list he swiftly passes on to George and Mr. Burns. I mean, (laughs) Uncle Carrie. Whoops. Excellent. Now, if Nat Pierce could oblige us further and kindly bite the dust. So we may hasten the demise of Pasco's bank. And with it, the Poldark nest egg. Ross runs into Dwight at the mine and asks him about his look of complete despair from earlier in the episode. Dwight informs him that baby Sarah has a congenital heart defect, which means as soon as she gets an infection, her heart will not be able to handle the strain and she will die. Caroline, of course, doesn't know. Dwight says he doesn't know how to tell her. They are interrupted by Zachy, who tells Ross they are ready to start blasting at the mine. You remember last week Ross had that god-awful idea to blast down the Will Maiden? Time for him to implement that with that ultra-precise method of 18th century dynamite. What could possibly go wrong? Anyhow, uh, new Jeffrey Charles is still in town, so he and Elizabeth go and visit his old governess, Morwenna. He then, of course, goes to see Drake at the blacksmith yard and tells him all about it. Drake is finally sensible and tells Jeffrey Charles not to resurrect something long since dead. What have I been saying all season and the season before and forever Uh and ever? Yep. Rosina just 
happens to walk past at that particular moment and waves at Drake, and Drake says that life must go on. Speaking of Morwenna, her husband Ozzy is getting his rocks off at Rowella's. They set up an arrangement for every Thursday evening when her husband is out visiting his family. Of course, you realize our association is purely temporary. As soon as my wife sees fit to resume marital relations... In the meantime, Vicar... You might have noticed how threadbare is the rug and the cushions in the parlour. You are a vile, acquisitive harlot. And I cannot think how I came to be ensnared by you. Rosella's very ginger husband spots him leaving their house. Hashtag, this be good. Sam and Drake are over at Nampara for lunch, discussing the mine when Rosina barges in holding a laundry basket. Demelza puts her matchmaking prowess to work and suggests that Drake help Rosina carry it home. They, of course, take the beautiful scenic route home, right next to the cliffs. Rosina takes the basket back near Saul. Worried people will think they're courting, but Drake yanks it back and declares that folk can think what they like. I get your class ring, bitch, because we are going a courting. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Drake's ex is getting dodgy looks from her husband, probably because she still will not sleep with him. Ozzy comes up with a truly heartless plan. He wants to have Morwenna sectioned and have her sent to an asylum. Now, grossly, at the time, Men owned their wives and could easily do with them what they pleased. However, as a vicar, Ozzy has to show more discretion and he is reluctant to have the matter brought up to the bishop. He therefore goes through the route of sanctioning her, which means getting two doctors to agree to her mental instability. Unluckily for him, the only two doctors in town are Choke and Dwight Ennis, and Dwight did not come to play. I cannot help you, sir, nor do I wish to. It's my humble opinion that if a husband cannot win his wife by loving kindness and sympathy, then he deserves to go without her. Yes, queen. Yes. <laughs> Back to mining. Uh, let's see. Sam and Ross discover a small trickle of water in the mine. Cue disaster movie music as they run screaming for everyone to get out. Apparently, the small trickle isn't enough drama, so we cut to a whole wall collapse as massive bursts of water push through the mine. Ross then goes down even deeper in the mine and warns more men, saving dozens of lives, including Zaki and some random redshirt dude. They wade their way through the tunnel and back to the ladder and climb up only for random redshirt dude to miss a rung on the ladder and fall all the way back down. But even that's not dramatic enough. He then gets stuck underwater when a mine cart full of rocks falls on his legs. Ross, being the hero that he is, goes back for him and single-handedly lifts the massively heavy cart off of him. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Then drags Red Shirt's unconscious body towards the ladder. Above the ground, the bell is rung and word quickly spreads of the flooding. Demelza, Drake, Rosina, and Dwight all run to the mine, watching as men come out, gasping for air and waiting for Ross and Sam to come up. Back inside the mine, Ross is screaming, help us up the mine shaft desperately. He's starting to lose grip of a red shirt. Sam pops up like a guardian angel with a rope and helps them climb up the ladder. They make it back above ground where Dwight performs CPR and saves Red Shirt, who is in fact called Bobby's life. But who cares, we won't ever see him again. Fun fact, the first documented chest compression was performed in 1891, so this isn't technically anachronistic, even if it wasn't widely practiced. Hmm. Very interesting. Sam, still wrapped in a blanket from his adventure down the mine, gets a visit from Emma, who apparently did not hear about the mine collapse and thinks now would be a great time to break Sam's heart. I be going to marry Ned Artnell, second footman in Tahiti. He's a kind man, not wild like Tom, nor pure like me. Well, Sam, if it were simply a matter of loving, then you and I'd be wed. It ain't that simple. For I'm a loud, brazen girl, and you, you're a preacher. And folk would look askance if you were to wed a girl like me. Let them think what they like, Emma. Nay, Sam. For I did give Ned out know my word. Though not my heart, 
paper that I already give to thee. God bless thee, Sam. I will never forget thee. She gives him a kiss on the forehead and off she toddles, never to be seen again. Goodbye, Emma. We hardly knew ye. Literally, you got zero screen time, but moving on. Ross goes home and starts reading up. Turns blasting into an old mine often leads to flooding. It's unlikely that an experienced mine owner like Ross would not know this, but this new version of Ross reads it as if it's new information, and he is horrified to have put profit before safety. Tragically, baby Sarah develops a cough, and although Caroline insists it's not the end of the world, Dwight is forced to inform her that it actually is. Ross catches wind of this and joins them in an attempt to comfort them as they are forced to watch Sarah die. My darling. She's gone. Will you not let me take her from you? No. But have her stay with me a while. Dwight starts sobbing and has to leave the room where Ross is waiting for him, and he falls into Ross's arms and weeps. This is the saddest scene ever. Then cut to baby Sarah's funeral. Dwight carrying her coffin in the pouring rain in a manner reminiscent of Judy's funeral. Ugh. Sad. Very sad. sad. <laughs> Push those Horribly sad. Yes. Uh, following that, Demelza is walking Nampara Beach and sobbing when Ross approaches her. She tells him that it feels like the loss of Julia all over again. Ross, never missing an opportunity to be insensitive, accuses her of thinking about you. You ask me that now. After all this time, you still doubt me. Perhaps I doubt everything. My purpose, my use, the wisdom of returning to London. The wisdom of going there in the first place. Are you not obliged to return? Yes, I am. But what are my obligations here? I mean, can we just talk about Sarah Ross? When did this conversation become about you? George announces that now that he owns all of St. Michael, all he needs to do is remove one of, the, one of its MPs and step into his seat. He invites one of them over and basically bribes him into quitting. While Elizabeth eavesdrops, as she always does, <laughs> back to her old ways. Watch out, London, because George is back. Ross defers his return to London to sort out the mine. Repairs will take months, and while his miners are digging up mud and pumping out water the mine, water the mine won't be making any money. Ross and Demelza agree to spend all their savings on trying to reopen the mine. Caroline approaches Dwight in their garden, and she explains that she can't move past her grief while still living in a home filled with memories of Sarah. She plans on going back to London for a few months. Dwight asks to go with her, but she points out that he cannot abandon his patience. Dwight looks heartbroken, but agrees. They say their goodbyes. Now, Dr. Ennis, do your best not to miss Horace. I will do my best. Not to miss Horace. So sad, oh God. Uh. Dwight and Ross go for a walk and talk about how they coped with the loss of their children. They come across the fence George erected back in season two, looking a bit wonky. So Ross seizes the opportunity to do a little property damage and wrecks it. I agree. Fine behavior for a politician. If I may call oneself such, outside of Parliament. Verity would say I suffer from the curse of the Poldarks. Which is? Swiftness to anger. Readiness to hold a grievance. Inability to compromise. That's three curses. And are any of them true? Dwight, who are you kidding? All of them are true. But Dwight is playing at enabler today and insists that Ross's anger could be a force for good. We'll see how that pans out this season. 
Okay. <laughs> Months have apparently passed, and Ross is packing up for it, packing for his return to London. All episode, Demelza has been dropping hints that she wants to go with him, but he repeatedly insists that she needs to stay in Cornwall and look after the mine. Ross goes to saddle his horse, his horse, and says goodbye to Dwight, promising to bring Caroline back to him. Demelza and the kids come to bid him goodbye and watch as Ross gallops away. Here we are, deserted. Abandoned. Well, we must try to make the best of it. Yes. Let's try to make the best. The episode ends with Demelza singing a pretty depressing lullaby to Jeremy and Clowns as they sleep in bed with her. End of episode four! Okay, like, first things first. Did you like this episode? Uh, I think this episode suffered from all the mistakes of last week's episode. There was weak plotting, disjointed narratives, and just too many short scenes that didn't allow you to exist in a moment before, like, pulling you out. Having said that, (laughs) it worked a hell of a lot more for me because I was really engaged with Dwight, Caroline, and Sam, Emma tragedies, like, on a completely just pure emotional level. Like, I cried. I cried a lot. So while intellectually I know it wasn't the best episode, emotionally I think it surpassed all the others. Oh my god! Um, totally agree with you, Rita. Um, was so much less engaged with the drama happening between Ross and Demelza because of what I know we'll talk about in just a little bit, and was completely swept up in the life of the Ennises and the brief, less than minute long scene we had with Sam and Emma. Um, there was some powerhouse acting done by the four of them and had me completely riveted and ugly crying, but you know. Uh, yes, somehow I think that, I'm not saying this episode was uh, the best of season four, uh, but I think, uh, usually the best full dark episodes are the ones with the highest emotional level and, uh, truly, um, Caroline and Dwight were the stars of this episode, and especially Luke Norris, who completely broke my heart. Yeah, Gabriella Wilde and Luke Norris really, really killed it this week. I know we're only halfway through, but I'm going to call them the performers of the season, because I think the way the episode structured their storyline was very clunky, and should have ruined the emotional impact of Sarah's death, which happened like halfway through um but the acting was just so intense and so moving that you couldn't help but get sucked in even with the abrupt cuts to ross mining <laughs> i mean that's a sign of a really excellent performer in my opinion someone who can elevate the material. yeah gabriella was pitch perfect as caroline our wry sarcastic favorite whose use of the language and all that it concealed was in full force and effect this week uh, for all her tongue-in-cheekiness, the depth of love she discovered with Sarah was was palpable, um, which made her decision to leave Dwight all the more gut-wrenching and completely understandable. I remember uh, when I was reading the book for the first time, I was practically shrieking at it when I got to this part because I thought that her leaving him at that moment was such an utterly cruel act. But now, frick it, I'm on that coach with you, sister. Give me the dog. Oh. Let's go. Oh. 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 They really brought the intensity and they put all their emotions into this tragic storyline. And I love seeing the contrast between Dwight displaying all his heartbreak and... Uh, on the other side, Caroline numbing her feelings, and uh, I'm sure the fact that the two of them are actually parents in real life helped them connect with the um, with the subject. Yeah, um, agreed. Luke Norris, we knew could bring the house down, you know, after the whole uh, compare situation, but homeboy shattered what was left of my heart this week. Uh, the desolation in his gaze and that final moment when he's watching Caroline leave him, honestly. Throw all the freaking awards at both their faces. Uh, but but gently, please, because hashtag don't break the pretty. On another depressing yeah. note, we, ha- we are saying goodbye to Emma slash Sierra this week. That was the last time we'll be seeing Emma. Sierra posted on Instagram that her product journey is over. And this is where her character bids adieu in the books. I'm just, I'm so sad to see this character go. She was such a 
fun and vibrant addition to the show and a myth that she didn't get more screen time. Uh, yeah, we need to we need to insert like a little tiny bit of Playboy's demand. You know, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday right here because I think that's really appropriate. How do I say goodbye to what we had? Uh, dude, if there was a storyline that got the proverbial shaft in this entire adaptation, it's this one. Um, you know, when she says Sam's too pure please. And this goes right back to, you know, what we were talking about last week that, you know, in the hashtag in the books, uh, Sam is, Sam is not pure. He lived a rough and tumble life, uh, before he turned to, uh, methody and, uh, or methodism. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if, he's ever told her that but obviously in the adaptation they've basically turned him into a celibate priest for lack of a a better kind of visual um and so you know it you know thanks for giving us such a paper doll cutout of what could have been a meaty meaty storyline debbie you know because we all needed 87 million scenes of Drake staring at the ocean. <laughs> uh, I'm so underwhelmed, you guys. I really thought that she would eventually uh, come back and return. And uh, I thought that their storyline, their relationship was much more interesting than, than the Drake and Morwenna. Because I think Sam and Emma are the actual definition of opposites attract. And uh, that would have been so much fun, I think, to see um, their different characters um interact and see what they could bring uh um in each so i'm so underwhelmed but thank you ciara because you did a wonderful job oh fantastic and if anybody actually wants to get to know these characters read the books read the books (laughs) read the books we keep saying that read the books so let's go through storyline by storyline Dwight, Caroline, and Sarah. I have nothing to add, just crying. Um, I'm, I'm going to yeah. go over there and cry. <laughs> have some tissues. Yeah, we talked about uh, Luke Norris and Gabriella Wilde doing an amazing job with the material. And uh, I also thought it was interesting when Dwight raised the fact that so many children were born in poverty and yet they still managed to survive and uh, live uh, pretty long lives for the for the for the period, and yet his own daughter was born in privileged conditions, and uh, she was already condemned. Oh, the whole thing was just harrowing, and the way you could feel and see how things had changed between uh, Dwight and Caroline the instant Dwight told Caroline that the baby would die. I, I mean, I just I can't take it. I just can't take it. Moving on. To not have your stuff, but <laughs> the mind floating. Yeah, now this was just <laughs> awful if you're a Sam Card <laughs> Just yeah. awful. Uh, the major differences from the book is that A, Ross wasn't near the mine. This was entire, entirely from Sam's perspective as he sees the water and goes to warn everyone, like diving back in to try and save more people's lives. And B, Two people died in the books from the collapse of a wooden ladder leading up above ground. So when Ross reopened this mine, he chose not to buy an iron ladder to save costs, which ended up having devastating consequences and leading to some real earned guilt. In the adaptation, the mine has an iron ladder and Ross has no culpability for the accident, really, which I think is complete bullshit. Sam is the absolute hero of the flood situation hashtag in the book. And I agree with you about the latter situation, but no culpability. Uh, the, the adaptation does show Ross's decision making to pursue this new dig to have been faulty. Uh, it might not have been as egregious a decision as the latter, but you know we know that this will settle upon Ross's consciousness, consciousness, <laughs> consciousness, like a dead weight. I mean, everything does with Ross. I think. My problem is that Debbie clearly made the decision to make Ross less culpable. 
to maintain his good guy, man of the people status on the show, which completely undermines the character that Winston created, which was a flawed, contradictory man who made huge mistakes with lots of, lots of devastating consequences. He was 100% more likeable in the books for it. This version of Ross holds a little appeal to me, and he's not a patch on yeah, book Ross. Agreed. Um, it's that watercolor versus broad brushstrokes metaphor I've managed to beat to death um, <laughs> on the the show, but it it is very true, and it applies to so many things uh, that we've seen in this adaptation. You know, the the Sam Emma storyline, for example. You know, it was like, okay, you've got a really great opportunity to have some nuances, some 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 multi dimensional. Uh, characters that type of thing but no let's just make them very simple and and he is a priesty person and she is the town troll i guess to use a <laughs> word of the time um you know and so the two can never be too uh, uh, which book are they currently adaptating is that the angry tide that we're on right now yeah, so I've not yeah. read The Angry Tide, but even if I haven't read it, I could tell that this moment was the perfect opportunity to actually establish Sam as the new leader. And because obviously Ross is going to get older at some point, so he's going to need some heirs to inherit the mine and a newly established leader. So I thought it was the, the best moment to... Uh, see Sam in, in this new light and uh, actually being the savior, but uh, they had to ruin it, so I was a little bummed. <laughs> in this version, Aiden Turner is just action yeah, hero. Right. He yeah, I, I guess as long as we have Aiden Turner in this uh, old muscles, then he's still going to be <laughs> stealing everyone else's thunder. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's, that's really, really unfortunate. Mm. Really unfortunate. Uh, so, how about uh, Sam, Karn, and Emma? Oh, poor Sam. I couldn't catch a break this uh, week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wish this had got more than 40 seconds of screen time. <sighs> but anyway, hashtag in the books, the chapter leading up to Emma turning down Sam is just one of the most brutal, overwhelming things I've ever read. So it was almost a relief to have it be over so quickly, but I think more work could have been done in the writing for that scene because it felt really abrupt. Yeah, I've not read the book, but I can tell you it was very brutal and came out of nowhere. Like, literally, she came out of nowhere. <laughs> she did. She just she really was like, oh, wow, Emma, you're here. In a new dress. You're here. Out of nowhere. Okay. What? Oh my god. It was like ripping a frickin' band-aid off, and that's a plaster for those of you in the in the UK. And it was it was awful. It was awful. Um, you know, and again, hashtag in the books. She tells him all of this in a letter. So, you know, I found it interesting that they in the adaptation they said, you know, I wanted you to hear it from me. I didn't want you to read it in a letter. You know, I think the the letter was, I mean, it was such a Dear John moment, a uh, literal Dear John letter that Sam winds up getting immediately upon returning to his home after this mind tragedy. Um, and he's so excited to see that he's got a letter from her uh, and then boom. <laughs> and it's just... It's gut-wrenching. It's just gut-wrenching. I get why they made the decision to not have it be a letter, because obviously you want to show these things. But it almost made no sense, because she was just like, oh, you're fully wet head to toe and huddled holding a blanket over you. Something clearly has happened, but I'm not going to nope. mention that. I'm just going <laughs> to sit here. I'm just going to dive in and take your heart and stomp on it. I'm sorry, but if I saw somebody like that, I'd be like, hey, what happened to you? <laughs> nothing. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Oh. Not a, nothing. Not a thing. And then drop the bombshell and then, okay, bye. Give you a kiss. See bye ya. Forever. You'll never see me oh. again. But kudos, kudos, kudos to Tom York for his performance. Um, he, he did a really great job. Okay, so how about Romelza? 
So another change from the books they've made is that originally Ross is the one constantly asking Demelza to join him in London, and Demelza was who's like never left Cornwall worries about her children is the one reluctant to leave. They've chosen to switch that up this time. Demelza is the one asking to join him, and Ross keeps putting her off. Do either of you have any idea why they would do this? And does that change how you view their relationship? Oh God, account? yes. Uh, you know, the, and it it goes to the same thing that we've seen uh, in previous seasons uh, with this adaptation. Um, you know, as you said, Demelza is so much more uncertain about many things in her life uh, than she is on the show. Uh, but you know, we can't have her continue to be this way and be the version of Demelza they've popularized in this adaptation. Uh, because being uncertain about leaving her children and worrying about leaving everything that she is familiar with is not the feminist thing to do. Because, you know, God knows, you really shouldn't have to worry about, you know, things like that. And be a feminist. And making Ross out to be the one who puts her off time and time again just reinforces the Ross is an unfeeling, insensitive, neglectful lout angle. I am rolling my eyes so hard at this. I may frickin' go blind. <laughs> I was completely disengaged with uh, with Romelza in this episode, to be honest. Like, I was more focused on uh, Caroline Dwight and... Uh, I, can, I did not understand why she had to be constantly passive-aggressive, and for once, I was siding with Ross. <sighs> okay, George and Elizabeth. Oh. <laughs> I'm growing a little bored with all the hatred George is displaying towards Ross. I think the show framing George's decision to take down Pasco as purely about the Poldark money is kind of missing the point. Hey. Pasco is a rival bank to the Willegan Bank, and this would just be a sensible business choice to capitalise on. B. Pierce committed a crime, and they're in fact just using that information to their benefit. Not the bad guys. C. George ultimately has far bigger fish to fry these days than an attempt to wield political power. I know this sounds like I'm defending George again, but in I just find the fact that his storyline has been reduced to a petty feud again frustrating. P.S. Elizabeth crying over Jeffrey Charles leaving was sweet. Yes. And again, watercolors versus broad brushstrokes is what we're getting with that whole feud with, with Ross. And I swear the adaptation gives more life to the George Ross shippers out there than anything else. Uh, the obsession that George has with the man has reached a really rather embarrassing point. <laughs> um, the nuances of the relationship between these characters and why they don't get along um, has been dumbed down in order to cram everything they possibly can into these few episodes. Um, I'm so done with George, to be honest. Like, I love Jack Farding, but I'm done with George. It's like everything that he does, he does not do it to fulfill himself as a man, as a person, but he just does things to just go against Ross. And I'm just done. Like, D-O-N-E. Done. <laughs> bye, girl, bye. Hashtag yes, read the bye, books. girl, bye. Bye, read girl, bye. Bye, George. Just, you know... Go to London so that we don't have to think about your nasty behind anymore. Because I'm tired. I'm tired of you. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Morwenna, Ozzy, and Rowella. Ozzy trying to commit Morwenna felt like an afterthought in an episode that was packed to the brim with storylines. I thought Elise was giving one hell of a performance as Morwenna, but I think this deserved to be in another episode and given more room to uh, uh, See what I've said before. Honestly, it's just... It, it, first of all, the whole idea that Ozzy was going to go for this whole declaring her insane thing just came out of the blue. I mean, it, the blue. You know, sure, she made that threat against him. She is functioning 
as a, you know, a parent for their child. And it's just all coming out of the blue. Speaking of things that come out of the blue, Drake and Rosina. <laughs> Yay! Wow. What an abrupt change in attitude from Drake. Seemingly, again, out of nowhere. You were right, Michelle, last week when you said this would make Drake look like an hat. But I have to say, God, do I prefer the chemistry between Rosina and Drake. There's something incredibly, like, real and awkward and sweet about their little awkward chats about the weather and their shared smiles as they pass each other. It's not the melodramatic drivel that we got from his previous relationship, and it's so much less creepy and tense. <laughs> I find myself rooting for them. <laughs> Lord help me. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I mean, we had small references that reflected the passage of time, um, you know, that it appears that Jeffrey Charles has to head back to London and that it's been a year since Emma left. But I'm old. I need reminders of this kind of shit. Like, clear, clear reminders. Um, so, you know, if it's three months after last week's episode, then maybe it makes more sense. If I had to guess, it's been about three to six months. But still, it's like, wait a second. He was sitting there pining for her not that long ago, and now he's exchanging smiles and taking laundry baskets and strolling along with her and all that kind of stuff. Damn. Yeah, when, when I watched the episode, <laughs> when I watched the episode, I thought, like, who is this dude and what has he done with Drake Karn? <laughs> <laughs> that was so, yeah. so bewildering. And I liked seeing him open himself to new possibilities and clearly we can see that Rosina is a good match for him uh, but I still feel like they're not going to go through with this uh, engagement and uh, because we will talk about that later on but the trailer for next week's episode shows Ozzy being attacked uh, on his horse and uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and like I said <laughs> in one of my previous predictions uh, I think the only way for Drake and Morwenna to be able to marry and to be officially together is if their husband dies. So you think? So you think that I'm sure. Ozzy's gonna die and Drake's gonna drop sure. Rosina because he's an, abruptly, uh, he's, he, just he, as abruptly he's still as he fell in love with her. Obviously, he's still in love with her. So, <laughs> yep, that's how cruel Paul Dark is. That's not gonna go down <laughs> oh, well. Man. Oh man. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see. Next week. Okay, favorite scenes. Uh, Caroline holding dead Sarah is probably the most morbid answer I've ever have given to a question. But honestly, it was my favorite scene. I think Gabriella Wilde has finally been given an opportunity to really deliver a performance. And she did not disappoint. There's just something so devastating about her rigidness in a moment of complete devastation because I think we get a we're like more used to seeing like big displays of grief in media when in reality people cope very differently to emotional trauma I certainly relate to her determination to keep it together anyway I just wanted to give her a shout out because I know the press tends to ignore her work on this show mm-hmm Yes, uh, my favorite scene, uh, also related to that uh, very uh, tragic storyline, was Dwight holding Sarah uh, with this beautiful shot. Um, It was heartbreaking to see him hold uh, this child that he knows he doesn't have much time left uh, with. To kind of put an end cap on this, uh, the scene where Dwight comes in to tell Ross the baby's died and then completely falls apart in Ross's arms... um, you know, uh, that scene was just crushing. And it's the second time that Ross has held um, a bereaved father uh, in his arms this season. Uh, and, you know, the first being uh, Zaki at the hanging. Um, and both men uh, in that moment are completely un- un- are incapable of returning the embrace. You know, their arms just fall open and it, you know, Ross is holding them up bodily. 
um, because they are so devastated in their grief. And uh, Luke Norris just gut punched me over and over and over again uh, this episode. And that one was kind of like one of the, the last moments where he could basically kill me. And But then, no, there are more that follow up after that. These favorite scenes, I think, for me, uh, the one scene that bothered me the most was the actual flooding at the mine, because watching it live, I it totally worked for me, and it was fine. But the process of creating this podcast means I end up watching the episode two or three times, and I couldn't help but notice the gigantic leaps and controversies that had to happen to heighten the tension. Like, for instance... A minecart filled with rocks being placed right underneath the ladder. Bit of a strange place for that. And having it suddenly shift and fall on Bobby's foot right at the moment he falls in the water. What are the odds? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I was not all that thrilled with, with that scene. Uh, but I think um, the the other scene that I found myself... Uh, really bothered by was the scene where Ross and uh, Demelza are walking on the beach after the the funeral, and it becomes a moment for the you know you're still thinking about Hugh. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> oh my god! They're I was like, no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, their best friends just buried their daughter, which is something that they both know quite intimately what that feels like and really you're gonna drag pretty floppy boy into the whole issue at that moment oh god then he starts talking about how oh i don't know if i want to go back to london oh for god's sake ross this isn't about you (laughs) uh my least favorite scene uh was Emma tell um yes Emma saying goodbye to um to Sam uh not for the performances because obviously um Ciara Charteris and Tom York did a wonderful job but I just think that it put an end to a storyline we didn't actually get if you know what I mean like we didn't actually experience an actual storyline on screen it was just like random scenes and then they finally confessed their feelings to each other and then Boom. Done. Yep. <sighs> okay, so how many tricorns out of five are you going to give this one? I'm giving it 3.5 because even though I was intensely moved by half of it, there was so much superfluous nonsense in it as well that distracted from that. So I can't, in good consciousness, rate it even higher, even if I think some of the performances were at a five. Mm, yeah, I think I'm going to wind up giving it um, uh, ugh, frack. Um, probably uh, I'm somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4. Um, a lot for the same reasons. Um, uh, you know, I want to give it a 4 because of uh, the performances that we got that were so freaking awesome um, this episode, but uh damn it's it's hard to do that because there was so much additional stuff in there that it didn't give we didn't have the opportunity to really see things take off and fly um gotta get through this book (laughs) gotta get through it i would probably give it a three out of five um like you said rita the performances were actually worth a five uh, I loved uh, seeing more of Caroline and Dwight. Um, I was a little disappointed because I thought we would actually get more Sam. We did, sort of, get more Sam, but not as much as we think we would. And um, also, the Morwenna stuff just felt random. Oh, God. Why can't we be happy with this show? <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, can you really rate an episode where a child yeah, dies? Very yeah, yeah, seriously, it's it. That's just really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, okay, okay, critics' corner. Let's 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 do this thing. Yes, because you know the drill by now. Every week, we give you our favorite quotes from TV critics' reviews of the episode to see what actual professionals think. 
So let's start up. <laughs> let's start up with the Times. Carol Midgley, who gave the who gave the episode three stars, said, "Does that feel moist to you?" Asked Ross Poldark, proffering his huge tool. <laughs> <laughs> smut was all we had to get us through the desperately sad episode of Poldark in which Dwight and Caroline's baby died. Dr. Dwight had already secretly spotted that his daughter had a congenital heart defect and would die of the first sniffle. An amazingly precise diagnosis, wasn't it, for the 18th century, when I'm pretty sure they hadn't invented cardiograms. Damn them for picking the cutest baby to play poor little Sarah. It really was sad, although I did notice that Pretty didn't even wash her face for the funeral. Shame on her. Oh, come on, give Pretty a break. <laughs> <laughs> She's got to wrangle all of the Poldark children and all that craziness, you know. So, anyway. The Guardian's Viv Groskop says, quote, There were many fantastic performances in this episode, and it was all incredibly moving. I'm not sure I cried so much at anything since Sybil died in Downton Abbey. Oh my god, that was just... Oh no, just don't even say that, because that was just awful. Uh, anyhow, she goes on to continue, before it became unforgivably awful. See, six years of my life in series blogs. <laughs> um, but I wondered if the pacing was a bit strange. The grief scenes with Cindy Dahl and Dr. Ennis were so affecting that it was hard to concentrate on anything afterwards. It made sense that Caroline would want to get away to London, and of course, evil George must continue his plotting regardless of anything. But somehow it all seemed a bit too swift, as if the plot must drive everything instead of the characters and the emotions. And every week, um, Viv gives out a Pewter Tankard Award for Bonkers Brilliance as Supporting Actor. This week, quote, I raise a glass of London's finest salon-served champagne aloft to Cindy Dahl herself. Caroline Penvenon, a.k.a. Gabriella Wilde, always a fine addition to this cast, but who particularly excelled herself this week. Wilde brings a lovely comic sensibility to this role and manages to combine restrained emotion with a believable portrayal of a complex figure. Caroline could easily be a snob or a caricature. Instead, she is one of the most enjoyable characters in Poldark. Top Cindy Doll fact, Gabriella Wilde was cast after a long search for the perfect Caroline for Series 2. Shortly after she took the role, it emerged she was pregnant with her second child. Cue Horace the Pug, who could be held on her lap to hide the emerging baby bump. As ever, final words have to go to... T- to Louise Meller's Den of Geek review, which we all adore. Quote, We all have our fun with Poldark, which is granted 20% hats and 30% funny words, but this series does good work. Even someone, me, who consumes more than the daily recommended intake of period drama, would struggle to point to another that shows an 18th century man not just adoring his baby, but deep breath, holding her, and then shows him being held in turn, sobbing over his loss by a friend, who offered the only words possible in response. My god, I think I've seen more men cry on Poldark than I've seen cry in real life. This drama reminds viewers that masculinity isn't limited to kicking down fences and scraping on the beach. Its male characters aren't required to bond only over drinking and gambling and women. Their friendships can be as emotional, intuitive and supportive as any. Master Jeffrey Charles and Blacksmith Khan swore a lifelong love for each other this week. Of just the sort that exists between Ross and Dwight. That was lovely. Um, And I really appreciate that she has called out um, the fact that um, men and masculinity is so much more than just broad brushstrokes. It can be as uh, intricate and layered and lovely as um, the relationship between uh, women uh, can be and has been portrayed in so many uh, stories. And uh, yeah, I thought I did think that the scene with 
Jeffrey Charles and Sam, or I mean, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Charles and Drake, um, was really lovely. I like the actor that they now have playing Jeffrey Charles a lot. I wish we would see more of him. I think it would be a great plus plot twist if they became lovers. Think about it. Wouldn't that have been better? Yay, Mel and Timothy, yay! That's a real forbidden love. <laughs> <laughs> and a new ship is born. <laughs> As ever, you can read more of their reviews on their respective websites, and we recommend you do because they're a lot of fun. <laughs> Alright, we're going on to messages. As ever, I live-tweeted again this week, which was hard enough through my tears, but I did it for you guys. Uh, join me next week, 9pm GMT as always, for my special brand of snark and pug gifts. Speaking of Twitter, we got a few tweets about the episode. Uh, so, uh, at Denise Mc... Oh, I'm gonna mangle this, so I apologize. McIlvany um, <laughs> said, I like how this episode went into detail about Sarah's death as it was somewhat skimmed over in the book. Uh, at Poldark Heart said, There can only be one Cornish hero in Cornwall, and that's Poldark. Ross Poldark. At Poldark, he said, Well, I must say I'm an emotional wreck after episode four, and mad as hell that Sam Khan's most pivotal storyline was ripped away and given to Ross. Angry face. That being said, in my opinion, this episode was owned by Luke Norris. His performance was outstanding. So many other storylines that broke my heart as well. Sam losing Emma, Ozzy's attempt at committing Moena, Caroline leaving. I'm emotionally draining. P.S. Would like to acknowledge my, albeit temporary, happiness with Drake, Rosina, Elizabeth and George embracing their power coupleness and an acknowledgement of how similar Ross and Caroline are, both escaping to London and leaving their adorable spouses to comfort one another in Cornwall. I did not enjoy Ross becoming upset with Melza when she shared her heartbreak for baby Sarah, reminded her of Julia, lots to amend for in an upcoming episode. And uh, we also got some things on Instagram. At Dark underscore please said, heartbreaking, emotional, but still a brilliant episode. At Cornwall's Dark said, the most tragic and heartbreaking yet, in my opinion. Such good act acting. At Miss Burns Regrets said, had me weeping the entire way through. I live for the Dwight and Ross bromance. Yep. And at Anna Marie 2412, my thoughts on this week's episode include my ugly crying over Sam's heartbreak and puppy dog eyes and Luke Norris' massively real tears and sorrow. Someone get that man a BAFTA. And Gabriella Wilde's genius portrayal of a woman who, who has been raised to be poised and strong in all circumstances. But the real comment that is overwhelming my mind is, how is Garrick so spry nay? How is he still alive? If he was around, <laughs> if he was around before Ross and Melza met, and he wasn't a puppy either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's so cute! Yeah. I can only use the book as a reference because the show is just so screwy, but Garrick's about 13 or 14 years old by the time the series is. And he's a latch across, so could live a few more years yet. Don't cut the old man out yet. He is gunning for it. <laughs> what is a lurcher cross? It's like a, a mix of working dogs. A few different... He's sort of kind of a mongrel, technically. So he's all... Okay. Yeah, I've never heard that term before, but I like it. Dummy yes! forever. Yes. Um, and we had uh, some asks at Tumblr. Uh, Pen Venon said, "I don't know how this episode was structured. I honestly struggled to care about anything that happened after Sarah died. A small baby just died, and I expected to care about, and I'm expected to care about George scheming to bring down Ross, as always, and get back to Westminster." I feel like the rest of the episode after the funeral should have been almost solely about Dwight and Caroline's grief, but I guess that much D&C screen time that is nothing to do with the other characters is still too much to ask. Hugh is dead and buried, thank the Lord, and they still found a way to make Dwight and Caroline's storyline about him, a la Demelza and Ross's conversation on the beach. I mean... They just lost a child. Can we not, for one solitary second, use them as a segue to that dick bag? <laughs> anyway, 
Great podcast. You guys make me laugh every time. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. Um, a thousand clap emojis. This episode was so freaking weirdly structured. That beach conversation was an excellent example of it. Having Demelza crying and bringing up Julia wasn't so terrible. I think it would have been good to draw a parallel to her death and have Demelza and Ross talk about their grief in relation to Dwight and Caroline. That could have been a very good scene. Instead, it was just a very awkward segue to talking about Hugh and London, and I wanted to throw something at my screen because A, it makes Ross look like an insensitive jackass again, and B, because it was unnecessary and all it did was undermine the emotion of the episode. And we had an email from Lobamama who said, I know it's in the book, but I can't really forgive Caroline for leaving Dwight alone so soon after losing Sarah. I get she needed a change of scenery and maybe some space, but I think it shows what what a narcissistic character she ultimately is. Not saying she is a full-blown narcissistic, but that she's pretty self-centered to abandon him in his greatest, greatest time of need. Instead of leaning on each other, she demanded the space to grieve alone, but that's not entirely human to do, in my humble opinion. However, losing a child, I'm sure, can make you do things you normally wouldn't have dreamed, so maybe I shouldn't judge. It was just awful to see him to see her walk back no to see him walk back into that big old house alone. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I did not get it when I read the book um and was really upset with her, but you know, they they managed to make it completely understandable for me uh to see that that was really the only way she was going to get through it and for Dwight to be um, graceful and understanding about it, um, it, it, yeah, it, it worked for me. But I totally understand how it could throw people for um, alert, give them a, I don't even know what my metaphor is today, because uh, God knows I'm tired. Uh, a loop? <laughs> throw them for a like loop. I like you're going to get yes. through. That's what I was looking for, because, you know, no coffee means no words. No words. People grieve differently. I'm not in a position to judge, having never lost a child. So I'm just like, if that's how you need to deal, girl, you know, you've got to survive somehow. Okay, so trailer time. Fever and soul for death. How long will we turn a blind eye to the needy? You know there's nowhere like London for numbing the senses. Give me satisfaction, Paul Dark. I have orders to search the ice. Your experience dealing with aggressive patients will prove invaluable. Tears must fall. Is it a sin to seek happiness for ourselves? Wow. Uh, so the description <laughs> so wow. the description is Grain prices rise, leaving the poor struggling to support their families. Ross makes a desperate gamble to help them, which draws the attention of the Prime Minister. However, Falmouth... I know, I know, right? Uh, However, Falmouth persuades him to compromise his principles to achieve his goals. Uh, Demelza continues her plot to bring Drake and Rosina together, but he is far more interested in a future with Morwenna. sake uh caroline continues to repress her grief and arthur who is rowella's husband is driven into a rage when he learns the truth about rowella's affair yeah so what are you looking forward to the most for next week i have to be honest anyone who joined us for our book club rereading the angry tide knows i'm not a big fan of the middle section of the book. So really, I'd say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you believe we're already halfway no, through the season. No, I but... can't. I can't. Um, um, I think I am ready to see the whole affair with Rowella and um, Ozzy uh, coming to life. Uh, I, I'm ready to see that move on because I think that um, while I absolutely adore the performances that we're seeing from everyone, um, you know, we are getting dangerously close to jumping sharks. And so I'm, I'm ready to see things progress at this point. 
I could say I could say that I'm looking forward to more Drake and Rosina, but because I'm sure that Ozzy is gonna die, <laughs> and I know that he's gonna be able to finally get together with Morwenna, I can't say that I'm looking forward to Drozina or Rosake or whatever you call them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we we might potentially only get one episode Aww. of them being Aww. happy together. <sighs> then we yeah, shall cherish probably. it. That's bonkers. <laughs> probably. Uh, otherwise I'm looking forward to Caroline in London I'm not sure but yeah Yeah, Uh, as long as she doesn't do weird stuff with Ross I'm good (laughs) (laughs) speaking of Ross there are photos there are promo photos on Far Far Away again there's a shot of him with Elizabeth and their son Valentine what Oh, and I'm God. like, uh, no, this is not acceptable behavior. Oh my God, no, oh, this is gonna be good. <laughs> oh God. Okay. okay, we will survive. Yes, and on that note, we've reached the end of the show. But we will be back next week recapping and discussing episode 5. If you want to get involved, then follow us at Polar Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Message us on Tumblr or email us at polarpodcast at gmail.com and you can be read out on the podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.